My name is Professor Peter Nash from the University of Queensland, and we thank Professor Kevin Winthrop from the Oregon Health and Science University. Kevin is the closest thing we have to an infected rheumatologist or a rheumatic infectious diseases specialist, and we're very fortunate to have him. We thank you for your time. We might start with prevention. Apart from the usual hand washing and distancing, are you recommending anything different from a prevention point of view for the rheumatic patients? Uh, and then we'll get on to the rheumatologist next. Sure. Yeah, I, I think, you know, prevention is the key. I mean, that's, that's the best, the best uh, path forward for everybody, whether you're a patient or a non-patient or a doctor, whoever, um, at risk, not at risk. I think prevention is, is really what we're all striving for. So the social distancing measures you mentioned, I mean, certainly there's evidence uh, here and probably where you are and elsewhere. I mean, they, they work. I mean, we've seen, um, you know, ep epidemic curves uh, flatten pretty quickly, you know, relatively speaking, after those kind of things have been um, uh, embarked upon by, by localities or regions. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really uh, imperative to keep those things going until we, we have better ways to you know, open up certain areas of the, the society. Uh, in terms of what else patients can do, you said washing hands and, you know, avoiding touching things and social distancing. You know, wearing masks. I mean, it took our, our government in the U.S. a long time to make that recommendation. Uh, the, main, the main reason they didn't make it earlier was, was, of course, just we had such a short supply of masks. Um, that's why it wasn't made. I, it's pretty clear to me that masks would be protective I, I have all my patients wearing masks when they're outside their home. Um, outside, you know, maybe you don't need to wear them if you're out in nature, you know, not near anybody. But if you're not um, socially distant, then, then I would wear one even outside. But, but otherwise, I mean, I'm not wearing them on the trails here in Portland, Oregon. But, but if there's lots of people on the trail, um, I, I would wear it. And can you just comment a bit about... Um how long the virus actually survives on various surfaces and um, is there anything people should be aware about viral, um, how long it lasts in various situations? Yeah, you know, it took a while for those types of studies to be done. And to my knowledge, I think there's still only one kind of, um, you know, one study that's really addressed those questions. Uh, I have not seen any experimental evidence in terms of you know, if you really took a patient with COVID and had them cough or talk into the air, what happens to the virus? We've seen some theoretical data produced by, you know, non-human situations um, about aerosolization and droplet spread, et cetera. Um, the six foot thing is meant to kind of keep droplets away from each other. Um, you know, supposedly, you know, those droplets do land on surfaces like you're wondering about, um, and even if there's some tiny aerosol, which I think there is probably some aerosolization, um, you know, that, that may stay in the air for a few minutes, but of course that's gonna go with whatever particles the virions are attached to, and they're gonna go with the wind. So, you know, assuming these things fall to the ground and attach to surfaces, uh, I don't think we really know how long they last. I mean, certainly there was this one study done that showed, you know, cardboard and hard metal surfaces, and they tested a variety of surfaces, and there was a range of, you know, uh, a few days on average for, for most of the surfaces that the, the virus can survive. So, you know, most people are 
getting their their groceries or their mail and letting it sit outside for two days before <laughs> before they open it those kind of things uh you know i don't know that we know how uv affects the virus we don't really know about other environmental conditions i'm sure you know prior coronavirus studies you know definitely humidity and temperature play a role in terms of how long they last so i think that the answer to that question is going to be pretty variable probably depending on where you are in the world. I think the best thing you can do um, as an individual is, of course, uh, wash your hands after you, you touch things. And, um, you know, if you if you went to the store and brought groceries home, put them outside, wh- wherever you're doing with them, um, you know, wash your hands afterwards, for example, just to prevent any sort of potential for that kind of spread. Okay, so let's let's talk a bit of prevention from the rheumatologist point of view. We get our receptionist just to check that the patient's got no fever, cough, shortness of breath, haven't been overseas in the last couple of weeks, and we get them to sit outside in the car, not sort of grouped together in the waiting room, and we're doing a lot of telemedicine. I imagine you're doing a lot of that stuff as well. Yeah, we've we've switched. Uh, I, I think it's pretty uniformly throughout the U.S., just talking to other colleagues and other regions, but we have uh, switched almost everything to virtual. I mean, other than acutely ill patients, uh, everything's gone virtual. Um, of course, that, that will be temporary, but I think at the end of it, you know, a good proportion of our business will uh, remain virtual, uh, at least for some things. Uh, that So that certainly helps reduce risk to the patients. I think you know, rheumatologists and even ID too, you know, if we're involved with an infusion center, that's a unique situation. People need to get their drugs. Um, you know, our our infusion center, I think, is like all the others uh, in the country. I mean, they have taken steps to reduce uh, potential social contact. So either, you know, the, the patients are being infused in their own individual rooms now rather than an infusion center that may have had, you know, six or 12 patients in the same room. Uh, or they're using the room to have capacity and keeping patients, you know, six to ten feet away from each other. Everyone's wearing masks, those kind of things. In terms of, you know, patients walking in the door, I mean, a lot of, I mean, our clinic switched over to, you know, several weeks ago. Every patient walks through the door should have a mask on. Um, that was a problem initially because uh, we didn't have enough masks to give people. Uh, and pretty much everyone here started making masks, and people are putting all sorts of things over their faces these days. Mm-hmm. Um, football helmets, scarves, <laughs> I don't know. So, uh, you know, people by and large have a mask now uh, when they walk in. And I, I think that's good. I, I do think the, you know, the problem with fever screening is a lot of people don't have fevers. Um, as you know, a lot don't have symptoms. Uh, and, you know, it's pretty clear that asymptomatic people are, are transmitting infection. So so it's hard to screen people at this point based on travel history, given the ubiquity of the virus at this point, uh, and then even symptoms. So your rumors should wear masks and gloves. And what about this N95 mask? Yeah, the party line here uh, is probably the same there. I mean, it's, it's for aerosolizing procedures. We, we recommend the N95 mask and a face shield. Um, if it's a non-aerosolizing procedure, uh, the recommendation is um, a surgical mask, at least. Uh, I would say in our hospital, that's what we're doing. We have a shortage of N95 masks. So so people are using um, surgical masks 
uh, if one's not available, uh, except in the case of aerosolizing procedures. That, that is where everyone is fully gowned, face shielded, and uh, has a respirator. Right. And do remotes need eye protection? Yeah, that's a great question. I, we don't really know how much of this is transmitted through an ocular um, mucosal route. Um, there are a few case series of uh, patients with COVID. I, I reviewed one of them for a journal. It was like 170 patients, and uh, zero out of the 170 had any uh, RNA detectable and conjunctible swabs. I reviewed another study where it was like something like one in uh, 50 did, something like that. Um, there was a couple case series of people who, who actually had conjunctivitis at the time of their other respiratory symptoms, and they swabbed positive. Question is, how did it get there? Is that where it started, and they got infected that route, uh, or or did it just end up there through their hands? You know, their runny nose, and they rubbed their eyes. We're going to discuss hydroxychloroquine a bit later, but some rooms have asked, should they take hydroxychloroquine prophylactically to prevent being exposed by these patients? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. There's a study in the U.S. looking at healthcare workers uh, just in that way. It's an RCT, I think it's the University of Minnesota. I don't know any results yet. Um, you know, the answer I would say is no. I think we have a hydroxychloroquine shortage, and I know patients with lupus and other conditions who need it are having a hard time getting it in some cases for their underlying condition. So I, I think, you know, doing that would contribute to that shortage, and I, I would recommend against it, because I, I don't think there's any evidence right now that would be helpful. Thank you. Um, commonest question the patients ask, um, will my medications make me more likely to get COVID, and will it make it more severe if I get it, and should I stop it? Yeah. Well, I was part of an ACR uh, guidance group that released some preliminary guidance on that, uh, I think yesterday or two days ago, trying to answer some of those questions. And, and there's a manuscript coming that kind of goes into the nuances of, of the answers that were um, put forth. I, I mean, clearly we don't, we don't know the answers to any of those questions, unfortunately. There's very little data. Um, I could tell you that I'm, I'm struck right now by the posse of patients with rheumatic disease that are on those types of therapies that you just mentioned in the case series uh, that have been reported and talking to colleagues, uh, et cetera. I mean, there does not seem to be very many uh, rheumatoid arthritis patients on uh, jack inhibitors or TNF blockers or whatever you name it. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I'm, I have this optimistic hope that these drugs don't don't increase the risk. I certainly haven't seen any data that suggests they do. I think some of the, the drugs might be different than others. You know, I worry about uh, JAX in general and their ability to downregulate innate antiviral responses. Um, TNF blockers do that as well. Uh, so, I mean, some of these drugs might increase your risk of getting it. It's, of course, a separate question and concept than and the second one is that once you've got it, you know, are you at increased risk for progressing to badness? And so some of these drugs may increase the risk of getting it, but maybe once you have it, they actually decrease the risk that you're going to um, progress to having, you know, a cytokine storm, for example. So 
Uh, it's hard to say. <laughs> it's hard to say what to do with these drugs. Suffice it to say, I, I think we all uh, have been in agreement that if you're if you're treating an underlying disease with these drugs and the patient's benefiting from them, that um, you should just keep going uh, because you know, disease activity is important and patients' immune systems work better when they have low disease activity. And if you get COVID, you by and large should should stop the drugs, uh, at least temporarily. And of course, you know, baricidinib might be different than the other jack inhibitors. It's all theoretical in terms of its ability to maybe prevent endocytosis of the virus. Um, you know, abatacept might be different than some of the other biologics. I mean, there's a lot of theoretical ideas. I mean, hydroxychloroquine, you mentioned that, uh, you know, has antiviral properties in vitro. I mean, uh, tacrolimus does, uh, MMF does. I mean, there, there's lots of ideas out there based on either, you know, theory or in vitro data. But but in terms of in vivo, we just, we just don't know yet. Excellent. And the comment on NSAID seems to be evil and on steroids. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, NSAID's kind of got a bad rap with this. Um, I, I think I, I don't know that there's any convincing data that NSAIDs modify risk of getting this infection or or badness once you've gotten it. Um, I think you know patients who are getting really sick, of course, and headed to renal failure and things like that, uh, probably not being on an NSAID is 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 beneficial. So I think a lot of the ideas of stopping NSAIDs around the idea that if people are getting sick, you're going to want to stop them. Um, and then what was the other one you said? Steroids. Oh, yeah, steroids. Uh, you know, some of the early data in China and then I think also Italy, you know, suggested that people were getting high doses of steroids for um, initially, you know, initial to sepsis or kind of at the time of developing sepsis, they were having poor outcomes. But, but I, I, again, these are uncontrolled, unrandomized observations. And uh, I think we're all thinking that, that limiting steroids in general is a good idea and, and probably should be uh, something we strive for here. But I, I don't think in the, in the acute care or critical care setting, um, I don't know that there's, there's firm data to tell you one way or the other. Comorbidities that have been shown to uh, increase the risk. So some of these people, they've got you know, diabetes or they're obese and they're old or, you know, they have chronic hypertension and whatever. You know, they have some of the risk factors that have been identified as, as those that increase your risk for, for, you know, doing poorly if you're infected. So uh, those kind of people I, I've definitely um, written letters for and tried to get their jobs modified so they're not having patient contact or at least contact with uh, COVID suspects. I think if they're otherwise healthy and they're just on these drugs, I haven't done that. I don't know those drugs are a risk. Um, and I guess that's kind of my, my answer until I have some better information. Excellent. If we look at some of the lab tests we're getting back, what do you make of the lymphopenia and the D-dimer changes and the CK and the liver test? Anything other than they're just prognostic factors for a bad outcome? Yeah, I, I think that's probably what they are, and I think they're a result. Um, but, I, you know, the lymphopenia, I don't know how much of that, for example, is 
pre-existing prior to the virus. I don't, I haven't seen that very well delineated. Um, certainly, you know, it could be from the virus and it probably is in, in many of these cases, but I don't know if some of those people had uh, lower levels to begin with, or, you know, perhaps subclasses or subgroups of lymphocytes were lower. I, I just haven't seen that type of data yet. I, I don't know if you have, but. No, I haven't, sure. Yeah. Um, age is a comorbidity, but what should we do with our juveniles who are immunosuppressed? Same risk as older people? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, certainly kids are remarkably resilient uh, with this virus. I mean, the, the number of reports of badness in, in people under 18 is, is, is quite remarkably low. Um, we're talking just a handful uh, that I've heard of. Um, I, I don't understand that. I don't think anyone does. Why are kids doing so much better with this than, than older adults? Uh, I just don't know. So, I, I mean, for right now, I think even a kid on, you know, Enbrel or something uh, or Tandercept, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily think that that person has a higher risk than um, an adult. Um, and I, you know, obviously, I think they're probably protected relative to adult on that medicine. Now, I mean, where does their risk fall relative to a 50-year-old who's otherwise healthy? I, I don't know. I, I still think I'd I'd rather be a kid on uh, a TNF blocker. <laughs> Fair enough. Another common question we get asked is about pregnancy and lactation. Um, how should we manage the infected pregnant woman about to deliver? Yeah, great questions. I don't think we know about the latter questions. In terms of the former, I mean, we're, uh, I, it's different anywhere, everywhere, but what I'm seeing in the U.S. is I know certain institutions are starting to screen every single woman coming in for uh, labor and delivery, whether they're symptomatic or not. And in fact, some of these patients are screening positive and they have no symptoms whatsoever. So, uh, that that is, I think, useful, and I, that's what I think institutions should do right now. There's enough community spread, and there's enough asymptomatic people with it. Certainly, you want to know whether they have it or not if they're coming into a uh, labor and delivery uh, ward. So, you know, our hospital has rooms uh, set aside for people who test positive, and they're cohorting people, of course, that way for in labor and delivery. Um, I don't know about uh, the child situation. Uh, boy, I guess I can imagine you'd probably want to um, separate the, the child, the newborn, from the mom for a time period. Uh, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know how people are handling that. I, I just haven't heard from colleagues yet how that's. I, you know, it's just a new thing. <laughs> it's a new thing to think about. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so, what about? Um, the testing, any comments, PCR, nasal, norepharyngeal, um, people with symptoms, fevers, open testing, not open testing, and then what about the uh, antibody tests coming, IgM and IgG? Can we rely on that to say you're immune, you can go back to work? Yeah, um, great question. So uh, my two cents on testing, uh, first of all, it's the Wild West out there. Um, Every institution has developed their own tests. We've got all these companies with tests. We've got 
test and take five days to get an answer. We got tests now that take, you know, 45 minutes to get an answer. Um, you know, I think the sensitivity and specificities of a lot of those tests is, are unknown. Um, I know our university just did a rapid test that it takes like a half an hour and, you know, the first go arounds it sure didn't look very sensitive. So they changed a few things and that looks better. I mean, you, you hear these kind of stories all over. Um, yeah. You know, I think probably oropharyngeal testing might be a slightly higher sensitivity than nasopharyngeal. Um, probably doing them both is probably better than one site. Um, there's data from China, you know, they, they supplemented the MP swabbing PCR with, uh, uh, antibody testing, as you mentioned, and you know they were able to to find more positive patients when they used the IgM titers uh, as evidence of of acute disease because some of those people had negative swabs. So probably in the end, we're, in terms of having a most sensitive way of detecting things, we're, I'm sure we'll end up with a probably a PCR plus serology strategy, like a strategy to improve sensitivity. Um, but, but again, you know, certainly the IgM takes a few days to come up. So people are going to be shedding virus and positive, generally speaking, before you're going to see uh, an IgM response. Um, in terms of the IgG response, certainly that, that should be indicative of prior, prior infection. I don't know how much cross-reactivity there is with other coronaviruses. I, I do know there, there's talk of false positives, and I'm sure there are false positives, just like with any serology. Um, and I don't know that that's been well quantified yet. So, so for some people, you know, it may be, they may be told they had the infection previously and they really didn't. Um, that would be a bummer. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I think uh, this, like I said, it's a wild west. I think in four weeks, if we talk again, you know, we, you know, might have some more data, but but there's so many different uh, tests and manufacturers out there. It's it's hard to say right now. And in a, in a well in a well run PCR in a well run lab, <clears throat> false positive is not a major issue. But if if it comes back negative and you've got a very high index of suspicion, you might repeat it. Yeah, I think it all comes back to kind of your your Bayesian probabilities, your a priori probabilities. So yeah, that's exactly what I do. Um, and you know, I think you asked about just kind of drive-through testing or kind of common testing. And I I have mixed feelings about that. I mean, we certainly need widespread ability to test uh, around certain settings, uh, so we can hopefully you know clear certain individuals to to do certain jobs and. Um, maybe, you know, clear my favorite two basketball teams uh, so they can play each other uh, with no fans. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. I can think of a lot of scenarios where, where we could use um, enhanced testing. In terms of just letting people, you know, drive willy-nilly through the streets and, you know, stop and have someone swab them and test them, I mean, that, that could be useful for the individual making individual decisions. Uh, it's not as useful for you know, I, I was explaining to someone, I mean, if you really want to do that, you got to somehow have a system in place that makes those tests reportable and the public health authority has to hear about it and then they have to be able to take some action on it. Um, you know, they need to follow those tests up in some way. So, I mean, ideally you, you build a uh, surveillance system that, that functions like that rather than some just kind of, you know, go get your tests and 
and then go home and freak out because you either have it or don't have it or you, you know what I mean? So there's pros and cons to that kind of thing. And ideally it's, it's one that's done with public health response. So. Right. Now there was a paper describing three different variants of COVID-19, A, B and C, which country's got which one. Do you think there are different strains? So even if you're immune to one, you can get another and that it might explain why the Italian virus has such a high mortality compared to the Australian virus? Yeah, I, I love that paper in New England Journal uh, from Iceland. I don't know if you saw that, but they were, you know, being such a confined region or a separate region, I mean, they were able to really explore how the virus got there and how it uh, started changing once it was there and, you know, described different haplotypes and showed that they came from different parts of the world. And I mean, there's no question that there is some viral evolution undertaking um, or that's been, you know, in, in process the last few months. And and I think there's enough differences now. Yeah, you can divide them into these haplotypes and kind of figure out where they came from. I, I don't know any of those differences translate to differences in pathogenicity. And I, I don't, I haven't seen anyone speculate that necessarily, you know, like card-carrying virologists, uh, for, for example. But, um, you know, whether it complicates vaccine targets, uh, that's a big question. And whether it complicates your, you know, your post-infectious immunity as you're getting at, it's a it's a totally open question. Um, I I doubt the I doubt the virus has mutated to the point that uh, you know targets that we're talking about currently would would change. But but it is um, it is a concern. Can you comment a little bit on therapy now? Something like what your feelings are with remdesivir and some of these other antivirals. Well, yeah, I mean, the lopinavir and, you know, the HIV antivirals didn't really pan out. Um, the, I think there's a new hydroxychloroquine study out today that was uh, from China. It was essentially negative. I don't think it's been peer-reviewed yet, but it's an RCT. Um, um, I think, you know, there was a negative chloroquine trial out of South America last week that you probably saw that didn't show any benefit. Um, uh, remdesivir, uh, I haven't really seen much data at all. It's just been open, open label experience or compassionate use experience. I have not seen any um, RCT data yet. I'm still holding out hope that that's going to be the one. I have to say I'm a little worried because it's been some time and we haven't really seen much or anything yet. So uh, I know those trials should be enrolling robustly. So it makes me worried that there's not a signal, but, uh, but we'll see. I haven't seen anything, but, but that's kind of the state of affairs right now. Now there's other trials starting of, of various other compounds um, that, you know, I, I think will enroll also robustly. So, so I think there's more hope out there in terms of repurposing existing drugs, but, but right now nothing really is showing much promise as far as I can tell. Yeah, and we've got huge shortages for RA and lupus patients for hydroxychloroquine. But in your hospital where people are sick and in trouble, are they still using that mixed with uh, Zithromax? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the hospitals have their different protocols. I mean, I know ours is hydroxy uh, with or without azithromycin. Uh, there's some compassionate remdesivir use. Um, uh, Tocilizumab is kind of a last resort drug that's not recommended. This is, I'm talking about my institution. Um, yeah. 
and this this is a committee of, of that I was not involved with, but but you know every institution has their own kind of treatment algorithms, and the Chinese have published theirs, and the Italians have published theirs, and lots of them are, are fairly similar. But but I would say most people are throwing hydroxychloroquine and, and remdesivir if they can get it um, at this stuff. They must be using a high dose of hydroxychloroquine because I must say I've never worried about uh, QT prolongation or cardiomyopathy in the doses we use. Yeah, you tend not to see it. Uh, I mean, part of it may also just be these people are so sick. Um, yep. They're high at risk for that. But, I, you know, I'd have to look at the Brazilian report. I don't remember what dose they used, but it, but it might have been a higher dose. Yeah. Well, yeah, they, they're using very high doses. Um, any comments on the vaccine situation? Uh, not yet. I know that I know that there's a lot of companies working on it, which is great. But I haven't really seen any. Uh, I haven't seen any anything other than some theoretical ideas on targets. And um, but I, I'm sure we're months and months away. But but I do know I do know that there there are phase one studies that are in process. So it'll just be a matter of time. Hey, lastly, some of the major issues we're running into is how we train students, registrars, what we do about exams, accreditation as we said before, clinical trials. So any comment on what you guys are doing to train your trainee? Yeah, it's a great problem. Well, I mean, uh, to be honest, everything's gone virtual here for a while um, to a certain level of training and down. So, you know, our medical students are basically sitting sitting this one out at this moment. Um, and, you know, people who are, you know, fellows or more advanced trainees here are are certainly uh, being work, but especially you know, little to do if they're not involved directly with you know, critical care, specialists, for example. So um, it is a challenge. I, I know that our educational committee is scrambling to come up with solutions, and a lot of it's you know the solution so far has been uh, try to do as much virtually as possible. Um, but you know, at some point, you, you need hands-on training. So um, I, I think, you know, once the curve, quote-unquote, flattens, which actually we, we never really we, – we flattened ours in Oregon. It sounds like you guys have too. We never really had a curve, uh, and we're all, of course, hoping it stays that way. Um, but, but I think once things calm down, we'll, we'll probably get back to, to at least normal training uh, for, for most uh, specialty residents. Okay, then well, thank you very much for your time, Kevin. It's been fantastic as usual. We hope our discussion helped clarify some of the questions the audience may have had about how COVID pandemic's impacting our rheumatology patients and their treatment. And we sincerely hope you stay safe and take care and wish you well.